Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good evening, everyone. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and welcome you to the second in our series, The Conversations at the Carter Center. This series is a way to focus on the Carter Center's peace and health efforts and current issues around the world. You will have the opportunity to ask questions to the panelists after their presentations and after the the, uh, discussion. And you were given cards when you entered, and please write your question on the card. And the uh, volunteers will pick those up, will be walking through the aisles, and will pick up those cards uh, all during the discussion. We welcome not only all of you here in the audience, but our webcast uh, participants as well. And since it is being webcast, we will archive that at the Carter Center website, so be sure to tell your friends and colleagues that they can access that in the days ahead. Tonight's topic is in honor of Veterans Day, which will be Thursday, and the title is After the War, Mental Health and a Veteran's Journey Home. We know the devastating effects of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and those activities and those conflicts have posed a major psychological challenge, not only to families here in the U.S. who have loved ones serving in our armed forces, but to the troops who do serve multiple tours of duty and experience a greater amount of stress as well as brain injury. Tonight we will discuss the challenges and the ways that families, communities, and the nation can support these veterans. This is just one of a series of events the Carter Center's mental health program has held during this past year on veterans' mental health. And this is a an effort to draw attention to the issues that will be discussed tonight. The 26th annual Rosalind Carter Mental Health Symposium took place just last week and brought together leading experts around the, uh, around the nation to discuss the mental health needs of returning National Guard and Reserve veterans. Earlier this year, the Carter Center partnered with Columbia University and the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma to hold a workshop for journalists covering veterans' mental health. More information on these events, including the blogs and the webcast, for those of you who are familiar with all of those uh, uh, different uh, media outlets, can be found on our website at thecartercenter.org. Also, we're pleased tonight that Uh, former First Lady Rosalind Carter and our panelist Kelly Kennedy will be available to sign books in the lobby after the presentation. Mrs. Carter's book, Within Our Reach, and Kelly's book, They Fought for Each Other, are also available for purchase in the lobby. 
Rosalind Carter founded the Carter Center's mental health program in 1991, and I was fortunate to be its first director. And I can assure you, Mrs. Carter has not slowed down one bit since founding that program. The program works at the state and national and international level to promote awareness on mental health issues and to reduce stigma and discrimination against people with mental illness. This year, Mrs. Carter and the program launched its first international project in Liberia to help establish a sustainable mental health system in that country that has been at war for years and has no mental health services. She and the Carter Center have also welcomed our newest international class of Rosalind Carter Fellows for Mental Health Journalism. And the program has been very instrumental in a historic settlement announced this past month between the state of Georgia and the Department of Justice that will help improve the lives of thousands of people living with mental illness here in our home state. And in addition to all those activities this year, Mrs. Carter has, as I mentioned earlier, published her fifth book, Within Our Reach, Ending the Mental Health Crisis. Please join me in welcoming Mrs. Carter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We did start the mental health program here in 1991, but I have been working on mental health issues since Jimmy was governor. And do you know that in January, where he was, uh, he was um, inaugurated in 1971, in January, I will have been working on mental health issues for 40 years. That is a long time. <laughs> well, I want to welcome you here tonight. Um, we have a, a good program in store for you. And um, our conversation is timely because uh, it's just a few days before Veterans Day. And also, as John mentioned, um, just a week after our annual mental health symposium, its own reintegration of our National Guard and reserve, reserve veterans into families, communities, and jobs. Um, our, our, pro, our symposium was a really great event, and it was uh, webcast too, and so it's in the archives, and you might want to look it up because we had great people here. And Patrick Kennedy made a rousing speech to begin the program and uh, just got us off to a really good start. You might want to... to look at his speech because it was about uh, the brain and some things that he wants to do um, since he's retiring from Congress. Um, but we had also had top officials, and the best thing about the Carter Center is that the best people in areas that we are studying come. And we had them from the, the Army, the Veterans Administration, National Guard, from Health and Human Services, we had the top person on substance abuse, Kathy Powers. We had representatives from the Labor Department, military, uh, National Military Families Association. Well, I'm sure we had more than that. And one of the best things here is so many of these people um, 
don't know what the others are doing. And the networking is what's so important in a Carter Center Symposium. And so the people here from the Army, the National Guard, and so forth, talking with each other to see what each is doing. It's really, really interesting and exciting. Well, since the beginning of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, more than 1.7 million troops have been deployed. There has been increased public and political concern about the consequences of these war experiences on soldiers and their families, specifically concerned about post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain um, injury. Um, and besides that, um, suicides, substance abuse, stigma, and, and also resilience among returning soldiers. And we learned how concerned the public is as we were preparing for this symposium because everybody we asked um, to come was eager to come and help. And um, um, I, think, I think everybody in the country, almost everybody in the country, is really concerned that we send our men to war, men and women to war. We must take care of them when they come home. I think everybody's concerned about it. The federal government is trying to do something. This year, President Obama proposed an 11% increase in the budget for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And also, when I was on my book tour back in May, I went to see Michelle Obama. Um, she had said she was going to work on PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, but she, we, had, we in the mental health community had not heard anything from uh, about it. She got interested in obesity and other things, and we were so afraid that she was not going to work on PTSD. So I went, I went to see her, and we were sitting on the Truman balcony, which was so great for me. I hadn't been there since we, since we left. And um, she was talking about what she was doing. And I said, well, you said you're going to work on PTSD. Are you doing that? <laughs> and her assistant said, Mrs. Carter, we are. We have a good program worked out, and we're going to be working with families, too. This woman was her, her assistant was her boss when she was in working in a hospital. But she told me that um, about two weeks before I was there, she had met a woman who said to her, um, said to her that they needed to do something about the family. She said her husband was in Iraq, and she had a little boy seven years old. And she said, every day he comes home from school and, and says, somebody asked me again today when my dad is going to get killed. It was, she said it just hurt me so bad, and I came home and talked about what we were doing, and so they're going to be focusing on families, too. And about a couple of weeks later, they announced that program. I went to Health and Human Services, and, they, and the Health and Human Services, the, the head of that now's father, Kathleen Stavellius, was her father was governor when Jimmy was governor. I went to the Labor Department, and they're working on PTSD. Everybody's working on it. Hilda Solis at Labor was an intern in Jimmy's office when he was president, so we've got some good inroads into people who can make a difference now. Um, the Defense, Department of Defense Healthcare System prioritizes care to active due to military and their families through own base facilities and clinics, but also provides services to eligible retired veterans as well as some National Guard and reservists and their families. And the reason we focused our symposium on the National Guard and reserves is that, as this just said, active military um, uh, veterans come back to bases where they have support, and their families, lots of, most of their families are there with them, and the families have support when they're gone and when they're at home. 
But the uh, National Guard and Reserves come back to their communities, their families, and their, their jobs, their work. And um, they depend so much more on the community and on um, um, public health programs. And they do get some help, but so many don't know what's available and what's not. Um, but the VA has, has been pushing forth policies trying to help, including providing some benefits to families of returning veterans. The Labor Department has programs working with employers to help them know how to accommodate veterans um, with PTSD and TBI when they come home. And many communities have new community-based programs. There's some really good ones in the country, and we heard about those um, at our symposium, some good models for other communities. And we probably have those on the, on the website, too. We do. Tom's nodding his head. Um, so you can see that there's much concern and many people working to try to help, and many veterans getting help. But there's a big problem because so many of our attorneys are not getting the help they deserve. Many don't know what is available, and many who, are, who do know what is available are not accessing the programs because um, they don't want to be considered weak and mentally ill and labeled as mentally ill. It is tragic to me. Well, we'll hear in more detail about the challenges our nation faces in fulfilling our obligations to our wounded warriors and what we, the American people, can do to help. Tonight, through the perspectives of a psychologist working at the Department of Veterans Affairs, a member of a Georgia National Guard, and a journalist who is herself a veteran of combat um, in the military, and, and since she has left the military, um, she has been... Um, embedded with troops in Iraq at one time. So now I want to, you will hear more about them from Tom, and I'm going to now introduce Dr. Tom Borneman, who's the director of our mental health program. I think most of you know that, and Tom, but you might not know that Tom is an Army veteran who began his career as a medic counseling returning Vietnam veterans here in Georgia at Fort McPherson. And since then, he's worked in many aspects of mental health policy from the Office of the Surgeon General to the World Health Organization to the Carter Center. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> Let me uh, join in and welcome you to this event. Uh, this is a, an event that was a pleasure uh, to put together and once again, whenever we reached out for people to, to speak or participate in it, we got wonderful collaboration and cooperation, and we're just uh, delighted with that. Uh, as Dr. Hardman said, this is a culmination of a week-long series of events at the center, uh, and actually uh, represents a, a number of activities we were engaged in all year. Uh, these are compelling issues for the nation, and we can't take our eye off the ball. So we're hoping tonight we'll add yet more insights into directions that we need to go in. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have posed unique psychological challenges to troops as a result of multiple tours of duty and high prevalence of brain injury, among other kinds of factors. Tonight we'll be dis we will discuss these challenges and others uh, so that we can better serve our American heroes when they return. Uh, what, and what we can do to support them and promote their mental health and well-being as they reintegrate. Tonight is an opportunity to look a little more closely at the situation 
for veterans here in the state of Georgia. We also look to hearing from you with your questions, and we invite you, and I'll remind you, as Dr. Hardman said, people will be in the audience um, passing out uh, index cards, and please give us your questions. We want you to engage in this conversation as well. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, we have also uh, a guest in the audience that I wanted to introduce. Uh, I wanted to welcome Major General Maria Britt, uh, General Britt, who is joining us in the audience today. Uh, Major General Britt is the highest ranking woman uh, in the history of the Georgia National Guard, and we're very glad to have you with us tonight. And was just promoted last week, I believe, or it was announced anyway. So uh, congratulations on your, on your promotion. Uh, Dr. Sonia Batten uh, is an Assistant Deputy Chief of Patient Care Services Officer for Mental Health in the Department of Veterans Affairs. Dr. Batten has extensive experience um, in traumatic stress, post-deployment, uh, psychological health, and the VA healthcare system. And I should tell you, Dr. Batten was also an invaluable advisor to us in the preparation of our annual symposium from last year. Welcome, Sonia. Colonel Thomas Carden is the commander of the 560th Battlefield Surveillance Brigade in the Georgia Army National Guard. Colonel Carden deployed to Iraq in 205 and 206 where he uh, served as the effects coordinator for the 48th Brigade Combat Team. Among his decorations are the Bronze Star Medal, the Meritorious Service Medal, and the Army Commendation Medal. And finally, uh, there's Kelly Kennedy as a former Rosalind Carter Fellow for Mental Health Journalism and a military health reporter for Army Times. Uh, she is an Army veteran, as Mrs. Carter said, from the Persian Gulf War and the Mogadishu Somalia events, uh, and in uh, Homestead, Florida, during Hurricane Andrew relief efforts. Uh, Kelly is the author of the critically acclaimed book, They Fought for Each Other, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Hardest Hit Unit in Iraq. Uh, and Kelly will also be signing, along with Mrs. Carter, uh, books in the lobby, as Dr. Hartman said. So welcome to our guests. We'd like to start this evening uh, with a question for Colonel Hardin. Uh, can you give us a quick overview of how the National Guard is different from the active duty and give the audience a picture of the National Guard here in Georgia? Absolutely, I'd be glad to. Uh, the Georgia National Guard is actually made up of three components. It's made up of the Army National Guard, the Air National Guard, and the Georgia State Defense Force. The Army National Guard here in Georgia is composed of 11,100 soldiers and they provide to our state and nation a full range of capability uh, from combat operations to homeland defense and uh, homeland security. The Air National Guard here in Georgia has uh, two wings, uh, one uh, in Warner Robins, the other one in Savannah, uh, and they also provide a full range of homeland defense, homeland security, uh, combat operation uh, capabilities. And the Georgia State Defense Force, while not a deployable component of the Georgia Department of Defense, uh, is composed of 800 members, and essentially they assist us and our families uh, on rear detachment activities to augment our capabilities for our soldiers and families at home. In addition, they also augment our capability to respond in the events of natural uh, disaster. Uh, now, we're different from the active duty uh, in that the, the vast majority of our population uh, serve one weekend a month and two to three weeks during the summer. Only 15% of our force is on active duty. Uh, our dwell time between deployments 
for that reason tend to be just a little bit longer than active duty. Uh, our largest formation in the state, the 48th Infantry Brigade, you may have seen in the news, uh, recently redeployed from Afghanistan. Uh, we deployed home uh, in May of, of 2006, and the brigade turned again uh, very quickly uh, in 2008 uh, and just returned home uh, in 2010. So that was a very quick turnaround for that unit. And you'll be um, heading out. Uh, we're, uh, we're currently working a, uh, we have a notice of sourcing for my brigade, and uh, we're continuing to train uh, toward that goal. Indeed. Well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Batten, could you explain more about some of the unique challenges faced by the National Guard and Reservists that may contribute to mental health problems following their tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan? Sure, I'll be happy to. And my comments really follow nicely on Mrs. Carter's comments because I think uh, one of the things that we know is when people are faced with stressful or challenging or potentially traumatic events, one of the key factors that can um, protect people from developing long-term problems is having good social support, having good structure, being able to stay in routine and, and have the support of, of the people around them. And for the active duty service members, as Mrs. Carter pointed out, they're more likely to have those supports built into their natural environment. They're more likely to live on or near a base. Their families have those supports. People in the community understand what they're going through when their loved one is deployed. Um, for the National Guard and Reserve, it can be a very different experience. Some of the units are drawn from very vast geographic areas. They may not all live in the same place. And so when they uh, deploy, certainly, um, oftentimes they, they do have the, um, the support and esprit de corps that, that the active duty service members would. But when they come home, then they disperse again, and they go back to their home communities, which can be suburbia, you know, X, Y, Z in any state, or in the city maybe where there's no one else around them who has had that experience. And so for both the service members themselves as well as their families, they may not have the, um, the people in their uh, environment who can provide them with support and understand what they've been through, ask the right questions, know what questions not to ask. It's a, it's a very different experience for our National Guard and Reservists. And um, so I think the, you know, I'm sure we'll hear more from Colonel Cardin about some of those, you know, specific examples. But it's, it's not that uh, National Guard and Reservists are faced with challenges that are particularly different when they're deployed or that they don't have um, the appropriate sort of, um, training or skills or things like that. It's that they, they deploy in a different context, and certainly when they return, they're in a different context than their active duty counterparts. Yes, it seems that um, uh, both of you talk about the unit, and uh, the unit cohesion, I'm sure, develops intensely when faced with uh, life-threatening situations overseas. Um, and then that unit begins to break up in a natural way, so that very core support um, may get lost in some of that translation. I hope we get into that a little bit more in our conversation. Uh, Kelly, you uh, present kind of an interesting perspective, both as a veteran who has served uh, on the line and understand that, that role, as, as well as one as a, of a skilled journalist who has to observe and report. Uh, wondered if you could give us a bit more about your perspective um, from a journalist's uh, viewpoint as uh, having also been a soldier but now an observer. 
Um, yeah, it's been interesting. I was, I was sort of surprised by my own reactions to combat when I went to Iraq, um, but also to, to uh, I, when I wrote this book, it was about the hardest hit unit in Iraq to that point. And to watch these guys come back after losing 15 men and, and see how they reacted to each other, how they dis dispersed, how they, they stopped talking about things, how they began talking about things, how their communities reacted um, was, was extremely interesting to me. They, they're also sort of similar to a National Guard or Reserve unit because their unit was dispersed after they returned home. They, they, they don't exist anymore. Um, so it was interesting for me because at the same time as they were kind of healing and, and dealing with their own post-traumatic stress, I was as well in a way that was unexpected to me. So um, I, I've tried to write about that since I've gotten home just to write about what post-traumatic stress looks like and what it feels like and how it affects our communities because I think if, from watching these guys from, this is 2007, just, just three years later, I'm, I'm seeing some of the guys struggle so hard and I'm seeing some of the guys go to college. I see, I've seen two of the guys become journalists, which is really interesting. Um, and it, it's just been interesting to see how if you address this issue, if your family is able to address it, if your community is able to address it, if you're able to get the help you need, um, how these, these guys have become leaders already in their communities or how they've sort of fallen back, um, dealing with post-traumatic stress as well as traumatic brain injuries. So it's, it's been really interesting. I think we've uh, got a lot to learn from people like this. Well, you certainly spent some very intense time with these soldiers uh, during your embedded uh, stint uh, with the unit. Uh, is there any particular story that stands out to you or stories that you might want to share with us? Um, well, my personal story is that I was with them on June 21st. And on that day, my photographer and I uh, were supposed to go out with them and decided at the last minute to stay back and, and interview some medics to, to write a story about the, medical, the medics who were dealing with all of this, this trauma. Um, and there were two Bradleys, and one of the, the Bradleys were sitting at a picnic table doing these interviews, and we hear this very loud explosion. One of the Bradleys had, had run over a deep buried IED, and it, it flipped over um, and caught on fire, so no one could get out of the vehicle. Uh, a couple of the guys were thrown from the vehicle as it, as it exploded. Everybody inside died. There were five guys who died. One of the guys burned alive. Um, and their friends watched. They, they saw this happen. They were picking up friends two blocks away. It was horrifying in a way that's really hard to describe. Um, and we were, we were there for the aftermath. We were there to watch the unit and see how they struggled through this day. And the night before, we'd been taking pictures of them doing karaoke in the basement and, and joking around. We had pictures of one of the guys' brand new tattoo. And, you know, we sort of felt like we got to know them, and then all of a sudden, they were gone. Um, and I, I, I didn't realize how much that would affect me, just to, just to lose those five men. When the, uh, there was a military police unit that came in to provide the perimeter guard for this, um, Bradley, after it had been blown up, and um, as one of the Humvees was sitting there, um, and a rocket-propelled grenade came in through the window and decapitated one of the female military police officers. She was 20 years old. Um, and when I, when I got home, I was running through stop signs. I just didn't see them. It was taking me three hours to read the newspaper in the morning. 
was just that distracted. Um, I was depressed for probably a year and didn't recognize my own symptoms. I'd been covering post-traumatic stress and still couldn't see it in myself until someone pointed it out. Um, on a happier note, though, it begins with a bad story. Ross McGinnis was also in this unit. He received the Medal of Honor because he threw himself on a grenade and, and saved four of his friends when a grenade was thrown into a, a Humvee, 19 years old, same birthday as the U.S. Army. Um, just real character. One of the guys who was in that Humvee, Ian Newland, has started a place in Colorado called the Ross Ranch. And anytime one of these guys in the unit is having problems, he wraps his arms around them and brings them out to Colorado and gets them away from people and, and near buddies. It hasn't worked for everybody. There's, there's a guy in, on the East Coast who they haven't been able to, to get to. He's just so damaged, he's, he's not able to, to relate to anyone right now. Um, but, but Ian and the first sergeant and the company commander have reached out to all of the guys in this unit and, and tried to, to bring them back in and, and talk about what they've been through and to tell each other how much they love each other, which is a huge thing. I think one of the biggest problems when you're dealing with post-traumatic stress is that these guys go in as a unit and then they dissipate. So they're not able to help each other through it. And then we've got communities where people ask questions like, how many people did you kill? Instead of, what's your job? So people aren't allowed or able to tell their, their stories in their own way. So these guys are kind of working together to be able to do that. That's, that's been um, heartening to me to, to see these guys reach out to each other. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, Colonel Carden. You've not only been deployed to Iraq in a command position, but returned home to oversee the reintegration of hundreds of guardsmen and women um, here in Georgia from Afghanistan. Uh, what are some of the specific challenges you are seeing in these men and women as they return home? Well, without exception, the, the greatest challenge that I've seen in the reintegration process uh, has been the lack of self-reporting. Uh, and our line of work and the culture that we have to generate in order to be successful and survivable on the battlefield, uh, we find little utility in uh, sitting around discussing our vulnerabilities. Uh, and, and that's just a, that's a harsh fact of life. When you're training a soldier to go to combat and survive, you're teaching them to, to move on the other side of a door through a building and not know what's on the other side. And uh, they have to have a degree, a sense of invincibility to be able to do that without hesitation. It makes them more survivable. The challenge with that culture is that when we bring them home, uh, essentially they'll get on an airplane, they'll fly back uh, to an installation, and within 24 to 36 hours, they're gonna sit down with a provider that's gonna ask them to bear their soul uh, and to discuss their vulnerabilities. And trying to make that shift uh, in such a very, very limited amount of time, I, I think we're asking uh, the impossible of our soldiers. So that's why I think you you know, don't have any empirical data to prove it, but just from an anecdotal perspective, uh, I believe that's why you see the latent onset of so many symptoms at the six month, one year, sometimes many, many years uh, after the fact when soldiers realize, or former soldiers in a lot of cases, realize they have an issue. The additional challenge that goes with that is our systems are geared uh, very securely to mitigate fraud. So these cases get flagged in many cases uh, when they come up five, six, seven years, even six, eight months after the fact. Now, soldiers in the National Guard and Reserves have five years of VA coverage post-deployment. 
So access to care is much better than I've seen it in the past. But then there, it becomes a compensation issue. Uh, if a soldier and family uh, essentially have lost their house, mm -hmm. for example, and I've, I've seen these cases personally, they've lost their house, they've lost their car, the soldier cannot function uh, because of the issue that was incurred in the line of duty, and they come up at the 24-month mark, for example, and say, I have a problem. That case gets flagged and gets additional scrutiny, and then the system is such that there are many wickets they have to navigate in order to be compensated. And essentially, we break a soldier in many cases in the line of duty, and then we tell them to prove it. And so the burden of proof at that point is shifted to the soldier prove that, to prove that, we, that this, was, this issue was incurred in the line of duty as opposed to the burden of proof being resting with the system, uh, so to speak. So I think without exception, uh, the lack of self-reporting uh, on the part of the soldier and the lack of recognition in many cases that I think is driven by the culture that we all have to perpetuate to keep them alive on the battlefield. And the other piece is there's some systematic issues that probably need to be, need to be looked at. And, you know, tie goes to the soldier, the soldier, the airman, the Marine, and the service member that goes to fight to defend freedom and the American way of life. Uh, you know, the tie should go to them, in, in my judgment, so that we take a look at them and believe them until otherwise proven right. that, that maybe they're trying to mitigate the system. It's almost like trying to burglar-proof your house. If you make your house so secure that, no, that the wrong people can't get in, if the house catches on fire, you can't get out. And it also seems you're, you're touching on a couple of other matters that I think is uh, uh, around this issue, such as stigma and perhaps other barriers to care that you've identified in your, your returning troops. Well, absolutely. I was educated early on when I was assigned as a director of military personnel for the Georgia Army National Guard. Then Brigadier General Britt uh, brought to my attention some, uh, I think it was a thousand cases or approximately at that point that were line of duty in investigations that were mm -hmm. underway that were overdue and she told me very clear guidance as generals do she said <laughs> I want you to fix this problem and I want you to address the resiliency or the programs that we have uh, in order to make sure that our soldiers are taken care of when they come home and the one quote that I remember that that she said in, in her guidance to me was nothing says more about who we are and what we stand for and how we treat those soldiers when we bring them home. And that kind of, I think, that's real well what uh, Ms. Carter had to say. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Batten, uh, many times the Guard and Reservists, like other members of the military, may come home without serious mental illness, most will, uh, but still face challenges reintegrating in their communities. What steps is the Department of Veterans Affairs taking to, uh, to uh, help the Guards and Reserve facing these other kinds of challenges as well? Well, I'd like to start by just reinforcing one of the messages you said, which is to underline the fact that the most frequent response to stress is resilience. And so the, it's important to remember when we focus on a topic like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is so important, to remember that the majority of people will have um, strength and resilience and, and be able to, um, to get back to, um, to good functioning with family and work, et cetera. Um, but it's not uncommon to go through a period of readjustment. I mean, everybody does to some extent. Combat is an extreme experience. It's an extreme experience. And as Secretary Shinseki says, 
you know, nobody comes back from combat unchanged. It's, it's simply not possible. And so it's important to remember that there are a range of experiences that people can have. And we end up talking sometimes about PTSD or suicide as, as the extremes, but there's, there's a full range. And so um, in, in VA, we've really looked at um, trying to find multiple opportunities to reach out to the returning service members and veterans. Um, and Colonel Cardin, I'm so glad that he brought up the, um, the issues around eligibility because since 2008, actually, Congress um, changed the law so that we can actually provide five years of free care, free care, no copay, um, for any service member uh, who's deployed to um, the Iraq-Afghanistan co uh, combat zone and um, for anything that is potentially related to their service. And so although the issues that you're pointing out around compensation, the, that's one thing, but in terms of accessing care, you don't have to prove anything in order to access the care. And, and as somebody who works in the Veterans Health Administration, that's my primary concern, is making sure that we have the care available for our service members. And, and kind of remove those institutional barriers. Yeah, exactly, right. And so they don't have to prove anything. They can, they can come and you know, show us um, you know, that they were deployed and, and we'll provide them that care. And so we work on having multiple ways of outreach because as, as Kelly was bringing up, um, and, and Colonel Cardin as well, people may not be ready the moment that they get off the plane to acknowledge that they're having a problem, or they may not even realize it. It may take a while to sort of recognize that things aren't getting better on their own. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, usually when people first get home, all they want to do is get back home and get to their family. And they know that sometimes if they check yes in this box, that's gonna delay their return home. So, so we work with, especially our guard and reserve units, um, at, to have multiple outreach events um, through the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program, through the post-deployment health reassessments. Um, every VA medical center has a welcome home event once a year now. We look to have multiple ways to reach out so that we can build a relationship and, and have that open door for the returning service members and veterans. So if it takes a year or two years or three years, we're still there. They know that we're there and they can come and access care. So if I had one message to get out, if you know somebody who's returned in the past few years, please make sure they enroll for VA benefits, even if they don't want to use it um, right now. They can enroll for it, and at least then they're in the system forever. Yeah, thank you for that advice, because I imagine many of our audience are family members or returning veterans themselves, and they need to know what to do. Mm -hmm. It's a complex system, and navigating that system is not a small task. So I uh, appreciate your, uh, your comments on that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Yellow Ribbon Program? Well, I can, I can talk a little bit sort of programmatically, and then I'll let Colonel Cardin maybe talk about specifically how it's working in, in Georgia. But the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program actually started in Minnesota with the Minnesota National Guard, and they realized it was actually the Beyond the Yellow Ribbon campaign. If you think of the idea of, you know, tiny yellow ribbon in, in memory or in um, the spirit of our service members, that there should be more than just tying a yellow ribbon. There's gotta be more that a community can do to help people reintegrate. And so the, the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program is now a national program that's available for all Guard and Reserve troops that reaches out to them at the 30, 60, 90 day intervals. Some states do more than that, actually. 
and um, provides information and education for service members, often for the family members, to, to get them um, the information and the resources that they need. And I know that I was talking to Colonel Cardin before, and this is something that's very active in Georgia, so you might want to talk about how that's working here. Sure, that has uh, certainly been a productive program for us. It, it initially starts during the initial redeployment, the three to six days when soldiers immediately uh, redeploy. Uh, we contact them, we have that program as part of the reintegration process as we process soldiers back in uh, to our organization uh, from being on active duty. And then, as you mentioned, the 30, 60, and 90-day uh, engagement opportunities. And, uh, and, and my commander, uh, along with our retired uh, state chaplain, uh, tried and piloted some things that I think have been very beneficial for us in terms of engaging the families. There's a program called Strong Bonds. And uh, General Britt went to a few uh, reintegration programs through the Yellow Ribbon and uh, some of the Strong Bonds programs. And, uh, and they noted that, that it would be really great if the families were engaged and educated up front. Uh, so one of the initiatives that General Britt started uh, with uh, Chaplain Owens, who, who actually happens to be here with us tonight, uh, and started working uh, with the families, with the, with the spouses, uh, in conjunction with the Yellow Ribbon program, doing the education mm -hmm. piece up front and then doing the Yellow Ribbon events on the, on the back end. And what that did, I believe, is it brought more families to Yellow Ribbon. So we were, we're not just engaging the soldier anymore. We're bringing the family uh, into the equation. And if you look at the suicide statistics, uh, that's also a piece of this. Uh, relationships are one of the number one issues that... Uh, we encounter in terms of trying to mitigate our suicide challenge uh, across the military. So I think the Yellow Ribbon Program has been, has been really successful for us. I think when we nest that with strong bonds in the family, it even becomes more effective, and I believe it really helps us get at that relationship piece of the, the suicide risk associated with some of this uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, mild traumatic brain injury, and some of the other stressors we see. It also sounds like it's uh, assisting the Guard and Reserve members to reconnect with their communities too and where those natural supports that are available to all of us living in the community are reconnected to them. Right. And, and I'll just add that, that without exception, and, and I can only speak for Georgia because that's you know where, where we operate here, without exception, our communities reach out when they know there's an issue or they know there's a, there's a challenge and if they know we're having a program. Uh, we obviously, you know, lots of military installations in Georgia uh, people here, I think, understand uh, the military, and we just have a, a great community of support across every corner uh, of this state. And Yellow Ribbon is really a forum to link soldiers and families with resources. And as you mentioned, the education process is associated with that so that we don't have a soldier or a family suffering in silence. Indeed. Kelly, uh, as both a journalist and a veteran, what are some of the most important public misconceptions uh, that the media might help defeat uh, about our returning veterans? I think uh, just, just to touch on some of the things you guys are talking about, we wouldn't be here if there weren't some problems still. We have a lack of resources. Um, we've got backlogs in veterans affairs. We've got a lack of mental health professionals in the military. And the military and VA have both have not acknowledged this. So like you were saying with communities, if we don't reach out and help these guys, they can't get the help that they need. The military and VA can't provide all of it right now. There just aren't enough people. Having said that, not everyone who goes to war comes back with post-traumatic stress. They may come back with some symptoms, but not every symptom. Um, I think 
we've got this idea that this that this generation's veterans are somehow weaker than past generations, that there are more cases of post-traumatic stress now than there used to be. And I don't think that's the case. I think that we're actually recognizing post-traumatic stress that we didn't in the past. Um, I think our World War II vets and our Vietnam vets and our World War I vets had the same rates, about 20% of post-traumatic stress as veterans do now. Um, I also think that having said that, those guys, and, and now it's men and women, came back and were leaders in our communities. Um, they, it, we've got this misperception that today's veterans, or, or that World War II veterans didn't talk about things, they held it in, they were so proud about it, um, and they didn't want to expose their families to what they dealt with. Our guys now are doing the same damn thing. They're, they're not telling their stories. They're meeting that same wall. Um, someone, like if I try to tell my dad about what I went through, he loves me. He doesn't want to hear that I was hurt and that he shuts me down. And as, as veterans, we sort of learn not to tell those stories anymore. So I think as communities, we need to recognize all of those things, that this generation isn't really any different from past generations, that this generation can be just as strong as past generations. This generation can actually be stronger if as a community we help them as opposed to the past where we really didn't, we didn't help them address things. I think a, a theme that I'm hearing from all three of you and, and certainly is important for our audience to understand is we don't want to pathologize the experiences of the, the people uh, that are returning, that in fact they uh, were faced with extraordinary circumstances and dealt with them. Um, and it may have left some residual effects, um, but that's not pathologizing a whole uh, generation of warriors. Thank you. Um, I'd like to, to get back to a, an issue that has come up and certainly something that we at the Carter Center are very concerned about and have been for a long time, and that is stigma, uh, and it's ubiquitous in every country on the planet, um, in, in every facet of, of American life, we run into it. And I, I wonder if you could speak for a little bit about the, the stigma in the military, how has it changed, is it changing, um, and how does it sort of play out? Uh, in, in real life for a lot of soldiers and anyone uh, who has a thought on that. I, I can sort of start the conversation. Um, there have been uh, surveys, the um, uh, Army has, has especially done surveys ongoing over the past several years um, asking people what are the barriers to accessing care. If you thought you had a mental health problem, would you seek treatment, and if not, why not? And um, the numbers of people who are saying they're willing to access treatment are certainly going up. So I, I do think there's progress. And, um, and certainly uh, Secretary Gates you know, made an important step a couple of years ago when he changed question 21 on the, um, on the security clearance form so that you no longer have to say yes when you're renewing your security clearance. You don't have to say yes, I've received mental health treatment if it's something related to uh, working through a deployment related issue. So Department of Defense has really been um, making steps. I think there's progress. But those surveys still show that, um, that a significant proportion of those who are in, in the service still um, 
report that they would have reluctance to, to seek mental health treatment. It's part of the culture. It's something that once, um, once folks reach veteran status, when, when we're seeing them in VA, um, we certainly work through as, as well. At this point, out of um, all of the veterans who, have, um, who are eligible for VA care from Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom, 49% have already sought care in the VA. Um, which we think is a, a tremendous number. It still means that there, there's a large percentage to go, but that's an unprecedented number of people who've been willing to seek care in the VA. And out of that number, the second most common problem that these returning veterans are seeking help for are, are mental health problems. And so we see real signs for hope that people are um, getting more comfortable accessing those services and um, we're working on doing things like embedding mental health professionals into the primary care setting to try to reduce stigma so that you don't have to go up to the, you know, the sixth floor or the 10th floor to get this other treatment that you can just get it right there in the primary care clinic and DOD has been doing a lot of that as well. Um, so I think that, that there are a number of things that are being done. Certainly progress has been made, but it's gonna take a long time to sort of change that culture. Yeah, I would certainly, I would certainly agree with that. Uh, one of the things that I think, it, at least in the Army, that has helped is we have a, a warrior ethos, and uh, it's essentially four things. I'll, I'll always place the mission first. I'll never quit, never accept defeat, and never leave a fallen comrade. And uh, what we have seen, I believe, uh, particularly in the soldier resiliency, uh, suicide prevention area, is maybe not necessarily that soldier that's willing uh, to self-report. Uh, we have had many, many instances of their battle buddy saying somebody needs to talk to him or her, uh, and, and that's been huge. The stigma is there. I think it's going to continue to be there. Um, we, we have to have a culture, as I mentioned earlier, of, of invincible uh, in order for soldiers not to hesitate. And so the culture, the same culture and the same training that makes you successful and survivable on the battlefield uh, in some cases makes you weak uh, when you return and, and makes you more vulnerable. Um, because I, you know, I know and have had peers in many cases that have had issues but did not want to seek care through the formal program. They would go pay for it uh, to get it, to keep it off the record. Uh, and, and which is good for them to get some care versus, uh, versus no care. Uh, but there's certainly a healthy amount of fear in regard to, uh, I know they will not issue me a weapon. I know I'm not going to be able to train my soldiers or myself, and therefore I know I'm not going to get promoted, and I'm likely not to be retained. Uh, that stigma is with us, uh, and we'll work at it but I, I don't see it going away anytime soon. So you're kind of identifying one of the real key elements left to work through is this juxtaposition between the, the, the warrior ethos and uh, how to gear down and, and uh, get back to life uh, as a new normal. Yeah, if you're not, if you're not in the fight, uh, particularly with an instrument cap that the Army has at this point, we need every soldier in the fight, and we see that uh, with soldiers undergoing even standard medical processing, if they're essentially holding a position and they're undergoing a medical board, then, then they, do, they do not count toward that unit's readiness. And, and that's an issue, and that's a problem. So if you don't count toward my readiness and I'm a commander and I get graded on readiness, I want you well or I, I want you somewhere else. 
uh, because I got to take that unit to war and I can't take that unit to war uh, because I got an obligation to somebody else's son, daughter, uh, wife, husband uh, to make sure that that unit is fully manned and qualified to do its mission. So it's, you know, it's one end of the spectrum or the, or the other. You can't have it both ways. So it really puts leaders uh, and soldiers in a, in a very challenging position. Uh, but the d default position in our organization with our focus on resiliency is we're, the tie's going to go to the soldier and we're going to take care of the soldier and then we'll figure out wh what to do next. Kelly, you had some thoughts? Yeah, the, the guys I wrote about, there was 128 men in this company and since 2007, I guess 2008, 15 of them have been pushed out of the military medically discharged for post-traumatic stress. And like you were just talking about, that's 15 slots. If you're trying to deploy, you've got 15 men who are filling slots who are not going to be able to deploy, and that's a huge issue, and that's not something the military has addressed. Yeah. Um, not only that, but those are the 15 worst cases. Those are the guys who are so bad they're going to be pushed out. You've got other cases, so how are they being dealt with? They're being told to suck it up. Don't, don't, don't fill my roster if you're not, if you're not going to be able to, to deploy. Um, in addition to that, these 15 guys who were pushed out medically discharged, none of them knew about the other. So talk about a stigma issue. These guys aren't talking to each other about what they're facing because they're so embarrassed by it. They're so traumatized by the fact that they can't handle it anymore. Um, and that's, that's sort of a stigma, stigmatization of ourselves. Um, even as journalists, we do it. You know, I've been told that my skin is so thick that I don't have any bones. Well, it's really hard for me to say, boss, I need to take a day off. I'm not, I'm not dealing with this okay. It's harder for a soldier, a Marine, I think. Um, and then in addition to that, you get out of the military, you're looking for a job. I was up at the VA in, in New York recently, and I heard some nurses talking about how they advise these guys not to, to put down on their records that they have PTSD, or else they won't be able to get jobs as cops. They'll lose their security clearances. It's not just stigma within the military, it's after the fact. So as a community, we need to figure out what we're going to do with that issue. How are we going to help these guys move into other positions, into other jobs, without re-stigmatizing them for their, their combat stress? You raised some good points, and I think all three of you have hit on uh, where some of the public policy barriers might be, and that, uh, that we need to, as a complete community of people, really think about these things. And, do we think about readiness in perhaps slightly different ways than we have in the past, although readiness obviously is a key uh, factor for a unit when it deploys. But uh, we've got to look maybe a little more broadly at some of these issues. I want to remind the audience to please put your questions on cards, and we will have people circulating in the audience that can pick them up for you. We certainly would like you to also engage in this discussion. Uh, while we're waiting that, I'd like to get into that very sensitive and difficult uh, issue for all of us to talk about, and that's suicide. Um, we know that the Guard and Reserve have deployed, but over a third of the force has been Guard and Reserve members. Um, yet uh, the completed suicide rate is highest in that group. Um, can we talk about that a little bit, uh, what your thoughts are on that, and what we might do about it, more importantly? Okay, uh, you know, I will tell you that there are some very common misconceptions. And uh, one of the primary misconceptions that we saw in our organization when we started studying the suicide problem uh, about, I believe it was about two years ago, the Department of the Army Inspector General uh, came to visit. And uh, so 
obviously that stimulated quite a research project for me uh, to, to prepare for that visit. And uh, in that research, I was very surprised to find that 57% of the suicides in the Army National Guard at that point uh, were soldiers who had not deployed. Uh, so it's not just a deployment issue. It is certainly contributes. Uh, I believe that, that certainly the stress of deployments is, is a piece of our overall suicide problem. But it's also... It's a good point. Uh, it's, a, it's a popular misconception mm -hmm. that, that, that the suicide problem is all about deployments, and, it, and it's not. Uh, I think in, in many cases it, it had to do uh, some of the anecdotal evidence that we saw as the Army drove to raise its end strength. Uh, to get where it needed to be to fight two wars, we lowered our standards in terms of what we brought into the formations. And when you bring people into your formations that are already having issues, then you're going to see a spike in, in some of those, those areas, and one of which is suicide. And, uh, and General Corelli, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, did an extensive study on that. And we have, and certainly since our recruitment, uh, the economy has, has certainly had some challenges. Uh, and, and every time we've seen that in history, uh, we've seen our recruitment numbers go up. Uh, and when our recruitment numbers go up, then that allows us the opportunity to raise the standard. So we're addressing that right now. The, the average soldier that can gain entrance to our formation now can, gain, can literally uh, gain entrance to almost every college uh, in this state. Uh, the, the testing and the standards is, are as challenging today in terms of the quality of soldiers that we're bringing in our formation as I have seen it uh, in my 25 years of service. And I think you're going to see those numbers go down as those soldiers are retained in the, into our formation. But there's no one area uh, that we're seeing uh, outside of relationships, substance abuse or self-medicating. Uh, in some cases, when, when soldiers have problems, we see financial difficulties uh, and, and the full range of issues that you see in society is, uh, at large. Uh, one of the things that we try to do is reflect society in terms of what our formations look like. Uh, so we have the same problems, just sometimes more acute. Thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk just for a moment about what we've been doing in VA to, to deal with this problem. Um, we're a, at a little bit of a disadvantage in terms of being able to track numbers compared to the active duty because for Army, at least for the, the active component, um, you know where your soldiers are and you know if something happens to them. Um, for veterans, there's actually not an easy way of tracking that. So um, because, for example, on, on death certificates, most states actually don't include veteran status, which is one of the things that we're working on so that we can, we can have more real-time numbers. So we have to wait for the CDC to provide us with the, the National Death Index numbers so that we can track how those um, sort of cycles are going so that we can know whether we're making a difference or not. Um, so the latest data we have are, are from 2007. So um, for, for veterans who have um, finished their, their service, um, we're not actually sure what the, what the trend is going to look like um, for the same period of time that, um, that, for example, DOD's been looking at over the past couple of years. But that hasn't stopped us in VA from, um, from really trying to take a, um, a very serious look at the issue. And so a little over three years ago, we implemented in, in conjunction with the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration a suicide prevention lifeline. Um, we joined, SAMHSA already had a lifeline, but we joined with SAMHSA 
to um, provide additional resources, to provide telephone responders who were trained to work with veterans and had access to the VA electronic records so that we could help get people connected with care. And so we've been in service um, with the SAMHSA Lifeline for a little over three years. We've taken 330,000 calls so far um, and we've made over 11,000 rescues. And a rescue is defined as somebody's on the phone and they're telling us that either they're in imminent danger of hurting themselves or they've already started the process. They've taken some pills or they're on a bridge or something like that. We've made over 11,000 direct rescues where somebody has been um, saved and secured for that, that moment. And, um, and so we're continuing to, to do, increase our outreach efforts with the Lifeline. Um, we've done a couple of things just in the past year or so that we're really proud of. Um, one is that we've changed the recording. We've updated the recording that people get when they first dial the Lifeline so that it uh, now says, it used to say, if, if you're a veteran or calling about one, press one. Last December, we changed it, so now it says, if you're a veteran or active duty service member or calling about one, press one, because we knew that we had the responders who were trained to deal with those military issues and could, could talk sensitively to somebody, whether they were active duty or, or a veteran. Um, so we're proud of that. And we also um, sort of recognizing the stigma issue and that sometimes even picking up the phone can be too much, even though it's anonymous and we have no way of knowing who the person is unless they tell us. But we um, implemented a chat feature. So if you go to the Lifeline website, you can actually uh, chat online with a responder um, completely anonymously. And we've had a tremendous response to that chat service as well um, because people can um, ask those questions and talk about those scary thoughts that they're having in a completely sort of anonymous, um, protected way. So it's something that, um, that we've done a lot with and, and we know that there's... Um, you know, every suicide is one too many, and so there's so much more for us to do. It's interesting you're reaching out in those new social media uh, that young people now are using. We've got to get away from our old ways of thinking about it and, and use the methods that, that younger people are using. Kelly, any thoughts on that? Just to put this in perspective, the military suicide rate for this generation is higher than the civilian suicide rate. You have to consider these guys have been screened for mental health issues before they join the military. It is a huge issue, and they are doing things to try to address it, but you have to understand that in the civilian population, there's usually a mental health issue involved. In the military, if they've already been screened for mental health issues, what's going on? Um, what they're worried about is uh, several things. They're worried that traumatic brain injury, which is commonly known as a concussion, your football players get them too, um, it affects the frontal lobe, which affects your emotions, your anger issues. These guys have easy access to guns and booze, so sometimes they'll call a helpline. Sometimes they're not thinking that far ahead. They've got easy access to guns and booze. Um, I had another thought there, and I just completely lost it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm afraid that's it. So you have to worry about the traumatic brain injury, but also what, what else is going on with these, these guys if they've already been screened for mental health issues? Why, why is their suicide rate higher than, than everybody else's? Could it be in part that, that something that each of you has alluded to in, in different ways 
that um, people's reactions to the experiences that, that they had overseas may be delayed, and it may be delayed a considerable period of time. Uh, and it may emerge as a surprise to, to even that person, him or herself. Terrific. Uh, I'd like us to uh, engage now with the community and um, answer a few of their questions and see if we can tackle them. Uh, one of the first questions comes on TBI. Um, TBI injuries and their treatment. Are women being identified and treated as quickly and effectively uh, uh, as men? And is the VA noticing or documenting differences in uh, men and women in the rates of, PT, uh, of uh, TBI? The, the first question I can talk about what our policy is for, for screening for TBI, um, for the past few years we've actually implemented a mandatory screening for all of our returning veterans who have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan. So when they enter care at VA within the first appointment or two, they receive an initial screening for many of the common symptoms of TBI. And that's just a screening. That, that tool doesn't tell us whether somebody actually has experienced a TBI, but it gives us enough information to determine whether they should be assessed further by a professional. And then they, they go on to have that further screening. So um, at a, a policy and I would venture to say practice perspective in VA, that is for all of our returning Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, regardless of whether they're men or women. So um, certainly I, I don't think there would be any difference um, in terms of how often those folks are being screened and, and referred for services. Um, in, in terms of the second question, whether we're seeing differences in uh, rates of TBI diagnoses between male and female veterans, um, that would be a research question that I, I actually don't, I don't know the answer to that one way or the other. So... We had a, a session last week in our symposium, and, and one of the leading neurologists who's looking at these issues, uh, Jim Kelly, was there talking about it, and we do have a lot of gaps in knowledge. Um, and unfortunately, after many wars, we have a leap in knowledge gained um, because of the, the intense nature of, of warfare. Um, so I, we're hoping that, that um, one of the few positives that will come out of, of so many horrendous injuries will be we'll know more about how to treat those injuries better. And, and with respect to gender differences, another place where we're looking forward to getting some of those answers is on exposure to combat stressors because for so long, um, although women were deployed, they were not necessarily deployed in comparable roles to men. And so we didn't know whether men or women are more likely to develop PTSD as a response to a combat deployment. Um, from these conflicts, we'll be able to answer some of those questions now. So although, um, you know, we would certainly never wish for the opportunity to answer those questions, we are making sure to look at those things prospectively so that we can learn for the next generations. And certainly brain injuries aren't new. You mentioned it, Kelly, that's a concussion, um, but it's a severe one. Um, we're, uh, we're concerned about that for athletics, and you know, the NFL is looking at it right now. So these are, uh, knowledge, this knowledge gain will, will be widely beneficial to the entire country. Yeah, I just remembered my second point that happens Good. sometimes. Yeah. Um, traumatic brain injury in football players, they think that they're seeing there's a connection between those traumatic brain injuries and suicide rates. So we're wondering now if that's what's going on in the military as well, if there's not something that's that's happening physically that's affecting their their um, emotional their emotions later on and, and causing some of these suicides. 
Interesting. Um, a lot of interest in the group on, on TBI. What injuries are considered as traumatic brain injuries? What are treatment options and the prognosis for these injuries for long-term improvement? And I realize none of our, our speakers are neurologists and, 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 and trained in these areas. <laughs> and certainly a, an experiential response is fine uh, with the caveat that we don't have any trained neurologists as a part of the team, uh, but experientially from uh, your knowledge. I, I can just give a brief um, description and then maybe refer you to a good resource on the topic. Great. Um, so uh, traditionally, um, traumatic brain injuries have been studied as a, a force injury. So if you're in a car accident and you hit your head on the windshield, you know that's that's the sort of uh, traumatic brain injury. Or or in um, football game when you have a concussion, that's one type of traumatic brain injury. But what we've been seeing with with this conflict, and certainly has been in the case in previous conflicts as well, is that now we have blast injury. So from the, the um, blast wave from the IEDs, et cetera, um, that uh, the, the blast wave actually goes into all of the cavities of your body. And so um, we know that there, um, the brain is being affected. I mean, we're pretty sure the brain is being affected by those blast waves, but we're still waiting for the research to determine to what extent that's similar to uh, a force um, traumatic brain injury or not. Um, but for those of you who are interested in TBI, I would recommend that you go to the website for the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center. It's www.dvbic.org, and that's a, um, a DOD-VA uh, consortium of TBI treatment programs and research programs that the two departments have been working on um, since the first Gulf War, and, um, or even longer, actually. And, uh, and that's where you can get tons of good information about treatment for TBI, how, to, how do you know if you were at risk for having a TBI, recent statistics from the Department of Defense about how many people have been diagnosed with TBI, and you can look at trends over the past several years. So I would include, encourage anybody who's interested in TBI to go to the DIBBIC website. That's a, uh, that's a great suggestion, but before, and I'll get to you, Kelly, uh, could you do that website once again? I saw some pins moving. Do it uh, Absol slowly. Absolutely. So www. D is in Delta, V is in Veteran, B is in Brain, I is in uh, Injury, C is in Center. So Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center, divbic.org. Got it. And if not, come up and, yeah. and see Sonia afterwards. Kelly, please. As far as prognosis, it's, it can be very similar to your football player. You can be tired and dizzy with a headache for about a week, and then it goes away. Um, generally speaking, I think it's 24, and you're not, your brain doesn't develop fully until you're 24 years old. So if you immediately get another traumatic brain injury, that can be very harmful. It can kill you. So it's important that these guys not go back out again if they're still dealing with that first concussion. Um, uh, there, there's different levels, moderate traumatic brain injury. These guys are dealing with, with short-term memory loss. Um, sometimes they can mask that in the war zone they don't shoot as well, they don't perform as well, they're, they're not doing a good thing for their, their uh, other uh, service members by staying out there, but they don't want to leave their men behind or their women behind. Um, a severe traumatic brain injury, usually there's something poking out of your head so the doctors know what's going on. They've got that one diagnosed pretty quickly. Moderate can be a lot more difficult because it might not show up for, for years uh, or for months. 
Um, I had a, a neurologist explain to me once that on a bell curve, if you're in the middle and you have a, a moderate brain injury and it pushes you back here so you're a little bit still on the normal side, it's not quite as bad if you're way up here or way down here. If you're way up here, it can put you in the normal range, which is difficult for people who are used to being very intelligent. And if you're down at the other end, it can ruin your world. So um, it, it's, it's very difficult to diagnose those injuries because how do you tell how smart someone was before? Um, they, they do, you can probably talk a little bit more about the testing, but for the first time since the war began in Afghanistan 10 years ago, they stood up a traumatic brain injury center this summer so they can check these guys to see if they should still be in the war zone or not. So it's, it's been a, a big deal. And I think the numbers are 200,000 or something like that. It's, it's, it's huge. So. Thank you all. This is an interesting question and, and a good one. Uh, what efforts are being made to build resilience in the individual soldier before combat? And is there any effectiveness, uh, is there any evidence of the effectiveness of preventive measures? In regard to uh, resiliency, uh, there are a number of initiatives uh, that the Army's rolling out right now, and it starts in, uh, in basic combat training. Uh, and in our case, uh, we have recruit sustainment programs where we engage uh, our new uh, enlistees even before they go uh, to basic combat training for about 120 days, uh, which is essentially four uh, drill weekends. So we get a few days with them before they go uh, so that we can provide the education uh, so that they can self-identify. Uh, that's reinforced when they go to basic training. And when, when they come back and they're a part of the unit, the family support groups, we have uh, chaplains engaged in our regional care team uh, type concept. So there's education, there's access uh, to service, and there's continued engagement, not only of the soldier, but of, but of the family. Now, in terms of empirical data about how effective it, it is, you know, we just, we just don't have it. Uh, at this point, but uh, right now, I think we're making a constructive effort to one. We we know we got. It's all about what did you know, when did you know, and what did you do. Uh, and so we know we got a problem, uh, and we know it now, and we're working on it, uh, and we're rolling out every program that I think we can we can fund and properly manage uh, to try to address the issue. And I think you'll see oscillation in these programs. There'll be some of them, as, such as Strong Bonds, that just started as a pilot program in Yellow Ribbon. It demonstrated success, and it was funded uh, federally at the national, you know, across the country. And I think you'll see some soldier resiliency efforts, pilot programs. Some will succeed, uh, others will not. And I think the ones that succeed will uh, will gain attention and gain funding, and uh, and we'll be able to save more soldiers and make ourselves more ready in the meantime. Mm -hmm. uh, Kelly, to Sonia. Yeah, I I concur with what Colonel Cardin said, and I would just add that many of these programs. Um, you know, sometimes you can't wait for the data to come in to do something, but it's then incumbent to make sure you're assessing and doing program evaluation efforts, and Department of Defense certainly is doing that now, each of the services, as well as at the DOD level. Um, but it's important to note that, um, you know, most of these programs are not just being pulled out of thin air. Um, many of them are based on um, good, sound cognitive behavioral principles that we know have been effective in a, in a treatment setting, and it still, uh, you know, remains to be seen whether they're effective in this sort of preventive resilience building way. But 
when you, when you don't have enough data, at least you want to take the best theory and data that you have to guide the program development. And, and I believe that in, you know, in the vast majority of cases, that's what's been used to develop these programs. Now, this is another area that's had widespread interest around the nation, uh, resilience, resilience in children, for example, and children uh, exposed to adverse life circumstances. Um, where the, the leap forward that we make as a result of working with these troops will have wide civilian application potentially as well. So it's something the nation needs to do. Right, and it's important to remember that combat is, is not the most common experience that leads to post-traumatic stress disorder. It certainly is what has captured the nation's interest, which I'm profoundly thankful for that people are paying attention to these issues. But post-traumatic stress disorder can happen in response to a physical assault, a sexual assault, a car accident, a natural disaster. There are all sorts of things that can happen that can be potentially traumatic events. So although combat is what's focusing our attention on that now, um, it's important to remember that, that this can, you know, anyone in this room, unfortunately, could be exposed to a potentially traumatic event. And so hopefully, yes, what we can learn from the battlefield and from the military and veteran experience can then be generalized and be of use to the, to the public overall. Any thoughts, Kelly, you would like to add? I think in some ways the resiliency training is sort of a prevention training, and in some ways that makes sense to me. If you're teaching these young guys straight out of high school how to work with their finances so that when they come back from combat they're not dealing with that stressor, or how to work with their relationships so that their spouses understand what they're going through so that they aren't screaming at each other while they're in the combat zone so that when they come back home they're not dealing with that stressor. That makes sense, and it looks like from the most recent research, some of the suicides that are happening in the military, it's not just they came back from combat. It's that they came back from combat and their boyfriend dumped them. Or they came back from combat and they're losing their house. There's, there's something added up. So if the resiliency training gets rid of that stressor, have at it. That makes sense to me. Indeed. One of the things that all of you are talking about, uh, again, and there's certainly some common themes that seem to be emerging, is the need to evaluate a lot of these programs, not only the more intensely uh, studied programs like TBI and, and those kind of things, which obviously need to be done, but some of the community-based programming that we ran into as we began to, to plan our journalism, or, I mean our uh, symposium last week, uh, we ran into wonderful-looking practices, but what looks good and what's effective may be different. And it's important, uh, particularly for community-based programs, where a lot of these uh, programs are emerging, they're ground up, uh, and we certainly want to look at them, but we certainly hope they do build an evaluation component so we can understand the effectiveness and uh, the replicability of, of these programs. Um, a couple of uh, more clinical questions. Um, is EMDR being widely used to treat PTSD among the military, and if not, why not? Sonia, I think that's that one's for you. Yeah, and and I can't I can't unfortunately speak. I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs, so I, I can't speak for what the military is doing with right. their with their service members. Okay. It's certainly EMDR is part of the um, the current clinical practice guidelines for PTSD, so it is um, you know a potentially appropriate treatment. But I can't speak to what the military practitioners are doing. Fair enough. Uh, next question, how can non-military mental health professionals help with these issues? Learn the language. I, I can't tell you how many veterans have come to me and said, 
I went in and started talking about IEDs, and my mental health person said, what's an IED? Or I started talking about my guys dying, and my mental health person started crying. You have to prepare yourselves for these stories, and you have to be able to speak their language. Other thoughts? Yeah, I will tell you that the one uh, director of psychological health that, that we have uh, as a resource for our organization is a veteran. And uh, while I know that's probably not going to be the standard and probably practically can't be the standard, I will tell you that it certainly provides us uh, great utility because she can speak the language in, in her caseload. If you look at, she's one for 15,000 uh, essentially plus, plus their family, so she's really good. <laughs> uh, interesting. Any other additions? Well, I, I think that um, that it you know it's an excellent point, and and certainly one in VA that we're recognizing because we've had a tremendous growth. Even in VA, we've had a tremendous growth in mental health professionals in the past four years. We've increased from over fourteen thousand mental health professionals to over twenty thousand mental health professionals. So a six thousand person increase um, in just four years. And so that, while that's exciting and brings increased access, and we feel good about our access to care. And, and our standards for that. It also means that we have a lot of really new people even into the VA system, the mental health professionals. And so as a system, we're looking for ways to work on military cultural competence training even, even within our system and, and certainly would apply you know, within DOD and the TRICARE network as well to make sure that, um, that people know how to talk about these issues, how to ask the right questions. Um, and you know, it, being a, a non-veteran myself, I've, I've worked off and on in the VA system since 1995, and so, um, you know, I, I feel like now I, you know, I can generally sort of handle talking about those issues, but the first few years, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was young and came from a, a family where there certainly was military experience, but it wasn't really part of my growing up. That wasn't something I was used to talking to. So I had to learn how to ask naive questions, but do so in a respectful way, um, and know when I was getting in over my head, and not act like I knew more than I knew. Um, and, and I think that there are a lot of good, just sort of practical things, but the, the, the largest thing I think is sort of starting from that perspective of respect recognizing the sacrifices that the service members and veterans have made, that their families have made, and asking the, the questions about whether somebody has military service, um, you know, whether they're a family member of a veteran. Those are important questions for mental health professionals to ask, even if that's not the presenting issue that the person says that they're coming in for. It also um, suggests to me, as, as you're talking, uh, each of you, that maybe it's time, too, that some of our um, mental health educational institutions take a look at it. I saw very recently the University of Southern California now has a specialty in the School of Social Work in military social work. Um, this is not an insignificant population of people uh, in our midst and perhaps adding curriculum uh, to training programs in all the disciplines uh, would be a wise thing to do and have broad applicability. There's a couple good books out there too. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, next question, are, are there any unique, significant mental health issues that are critical for women? The biggest issue for women in the military is that mm, they're thinking that the, the reason that the rate of post-traumatic stress in women might be higher statistically than in men is because there's a history of military sexual trauma. So that's, that's probably the biggest issue to look at. 
Yeah, it's such an important issue. The, you know, certainly we know that women are more likely to expo be exposed to a sexual trauma, whether it's in the military or in the civilian world. Um, it's also something that, um, and so we, we definitely want to make sure that, that we ask about military sexual trauma history in all of our veterans. We actually, that's one of those mandatory screenings that we do, um, mandatory for the clinician to, to make sure it gets done. Um, but with all of our both men and women veterans, because although um, the percentage of women who might have that experience is higher than the percentage of men, because there are so many more men in the military, the, the total numbers of men and women who experience a sexual trauma in the military is actually about equivalent. So it certainly is something that we want to pay attention to for women because it is so common. Um, we also want to make sure that we ask those same questions and have those same treatment opportunities for men. And to make sure that, for example, in the VA, that um, when somebody is dealing with a, an issue related to a sexual trauma, that, um, that we also give them the option of um, requesting whether they would rather see a female or a male provider you know, giving that, them that choice because depending on their, their personal experience, they might feel more comfortable with one or the other. So we want to make sure that, um, that we make that available for them. Okay. Unfortunately, this is going to have to be our last question, and we've not been able to get at so many of the questions, although we certainly hope we've illuminated this, this discussion a bit. Uh, the last question goes to you, Colonel Cardin. Uh, concerning self-reporting, uh, you get the... You get the uh, uh, the, the opportunity. I'm almost out of here unscathed. I, I'm trying. <laughs> I was trying to put it nicely. It's we think of it as more as opportunity than bird. Um, concerning self-reporting, do soldiers fear reporting a PTSD issue? Uh, I'm having a little trouble with the handwriting. Assuming the uh, impact will be entered in their uh, personnel file, that the report will be entered in their personnel file, and consequently could affect promotion job assignment. You sort of got at that a little bit. Um, I believe there's a component of that, but, but I will tell you, I, I forgot uh, who touched on it here a little bit earlier, but when they go through the redeployment process, if they self-report at that point, soldiers believe, and there, there's lots of evidence to bear it out, that their processing will cease uh, at that point. And then, you know, essentially, you know, they're, they're moved uh, into another line, and the other line uh, between where they are right now and going home is a lot longer than the one that they're in. Uh, so generally, soldiers will, will, will move to the line that gets them home uh, as fast as they can. They've already been separated, in our case, uh, from their families, communities, and jobs. Uh, in some cases, in, in my last deployment, was essentially separated for, for 18 months. And there was nothing, that, and I was a lieutenant colonel at the time and, and had served for many years, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm no different uh, in that regard than any of my soldiers. The only thing I really wanted was to navigate the lines and move through the cubicles and to get in my vehicle and go home. Uh, and that's what our soldiers want. And so I, I think that is an impediment. And I do believe uh, particularly the higher uh, soldiers, I, you know, I haven't seen a study, but I would be interested to see what the statistics look like. The higher soldiers move up in, in rank and the more ambitious they are in terms of upward mobility and future assignments. I think you'll see the less likely that they would be uh, to say, hey, I have an issue. Uh, so I think, that, I think those are the factors at play that we're going to have to take a look at and address. Well, thank you. Thank you all for your wonderful participation. You did good. You got me calm there.
Well, this was a terrific uh, discussion. Certainly your experiences and your um, thoughts about this issue have certainly increased our understanding of the topic. And we are very appreciative of your taking the time to be with us tonight. And Mrs. Carter, thank you. And please join me in thanking the panel and Mrs. Carter again. Our next conversations at the Carter Center will be on March 8th next year, 2011, and the topic will be justice for the poor, and we will hear from people in the field working about access to just justice in impoverished environments and countries such as Liberia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. If you liked uh, tonight's presentation, remember that you can Watch this on the Carter Center website, cartercenter.org, and you can tell all of your friends uh, to do that as well. Also, you can find out more about the conversations uh, season and what our next topics will be uh, in 2011. And you can also go on the Carter Center website uh, to access emails as well as join us on Facebook and Twitter if you are inclined and know how to do that. I have to, I have to get my children to tell me uh, uh, about uh, Twitter and Facebook. And for those of you here in the audience, I will remind you again that uh, Kelly Kennedy and Mrs. Carter will be in the lobby to sign copies of their books, and they are available uh, for purchase as well. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Good night, and drive safely. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.